across plants with a nautical sound to their name, Far Inland. This is a clue that people have brought one of the sea's ingredients to an area, salt. Sea plantain and sea spurry are coastal plants that follow the salt of salt trucks to inland road verges. If it is safe to investigate along a roadside, you might be able to uncover a fuller story about the effects of salt on other plants. Among the trees and shrubs, you might spot scorched leaves or brown needles, often only on the side facing the road. Other plants, like mullein, seem to have a taste for civilization. Long known for its medicinal properties, mullein, with its tall stalks of yellow flowers, favors borders of all kinds, from roadsides to train tracks to the edges of woodlands. The princess tree thrives along borders too, preferring roadsides and forest edges. Tree of heaven with a pale gray bark, fuzzy reddish brown twigs and a foul odor is another plant that has made a success of colonizing our industrialization. It is a clever plant and that has found a way to crowd out neighboring plants and that like any good industrialist, it has captured, capitalized on this. Tree of heaven grows quickly and is a prolific seed producer. It can thrive in unfavorable conditions along roadsides because of its robust root systems, which will extend its way into and sabotage pavement, building foundations, and even sewers. It is time for some less savory clues. If you spot a field that has a generous sprinkling of bright yellow flowers to it, much taller and prouder than the surrounding grasses, then do not eat these flowers. However strong the urge to forage is, and we live in a time of growing urges, these flowers will make a poor lunch. The very fact that they are standing proud is the clue here. The grasses have been chewed down low by sheep or other grazers, but these tall, juicy specimens have been left well alone. The reason should be clear. Poison. If not outright poisonous, at the very least, these plants will be too bitter for the sheep to eat. A plant that is too bitter for a sheep would soon have a human gagging. If you see plants growing in some decidedly strange ways, then that might be a clue. One four-leaf clover is lucky. Lots of them is a sign of herbicide use. Herbicides can lead to growth abnormalities like daisies with square centers or thistles growing in a contorted fashion. The plants are not only revealing the habitats of the human animal, but that of all the others too. We will look at individual animals in a later chapter, but there is a universal principle that can be followed anywhere we walk. A patch of land that displays an extraordinary richness of plant life indicates very fertile soil, and if this is very local, it nearly always means that humans or animals have enriched it in some way. This principle applies wherever we explore, backyard or far or back of beyond. Animal life, defecation and death will impact plant life, and we can work back from the plants to deduce the places in which animals, including Homo sapiens, are living. Wind and temperature clues. Plants can give us clues about wind and exposure, just as the trees did. We should expect very high lands to be bare. I will never forget the plains of Kilimanjaro, 
mile upon mile of flat land so barren that it is like a lunar landscape. But before the plants die off altogether, the diversity of plant species will drop with altitude, sometimes dramatically, going from perhaps 30 species of flowering plant to zero in under a thousand feet. We also find altitude influencing the timing of plant lives and cycles. Flowers tend to blossom later with altitude, and it has often amused me to think of walking up a hill at the pace of flowers coming into bloom, no doubt being overtaken by snails along the way. Bracken is one of those plants that all walkers become familiar with, but few see it as more than a backdrop and occasional hindrance. Bracken has plenty of its own ideas about wind and temperature, and is happy to share these if we ask. For some, it is an indicator that frost is unlikely, and so it is a clue to good places to camp, but others use it as a warning that there will be lots of midges and ticks in the area and a poor place to camp. You can decide for yourself if frosts or midgets or ticks are more likely to make you uncomfortable, and then use the bracken to steer clear. The most helpful clue from bracken is that it is sensitive to water levels and wind strength, and so will map out the wetness and windiness of an area for you. The naturalist Christopher Mitchell has even gone so far as to draw up his own bracken scale of wind force with a doff of his cap to Sir Francis Beaufort. Here it is, calm, less than one mile per hour, dense bracken, two meters high, light air, one to three miles per hour, dense bracken, one meter high, light breeze, four to seven miles per hour, stunted bracken, only half a meter high. Gentle breeze, 8 to 10 miles per hour. Bracken replaced by heather and grass. Have you ever seen those ornamental thermometers made from a glass column filled with a clear liquid with colorful glass baubles floating inside? This was invented actually by Galileo. The temperature is given by different colored balls floating as the temperature rises. Amazingly, the flowers we pass are doing much the same thing for us. If you start your walk early on a cool morning, you will find that very few flowers have opened fully. But as your walk progresses and the temperature slowly rises, you will find each degree marked off by the flowers around you. Many flowers, like mallows, need a temperature rise of over 9.1 degree Fahrenheit to trigger their opening. But tulips only need a 1.8 Fahrenheit rise, and crocuses will respond to a change of only 0.4. Fahrenheit. This effect is easiest to notice in the biggest and best public gardens. So if you do find yourself in one of these early morning of if you do find yourself in one of these early in the morning, then make sure to treat yourself to a walk through nature's thermometers. Rhododendrons have leaves that react to temperature, drooping lower and lower as the temperature drops. It is a subtle effect in the species found in Europe but it can be very dramatic in the plants in the U.S. or Asia, lowering from near horizontal to vertical as the winter sets in. A couple of years ago, I was walking with a park ranger and BBC producer of the Ballycroy National Park in County Mayo, Ireland. We were walking uphill out of a conifer forest into an area of grassland. Our route took us alongside an odd forestry drainage ditch, and as soon as we emerged from the woodland, I noticed that the left side of the ditch changed color. 
As far as I could see in the distance, this side of the ditch was covered in heather. Heather means plenty of sunlight, and the difference between two sides as stark as this spelled out that one side must have been south-facing. It was a clear sign that we were walking east. I pointed this asymmetry out to the ranger, who confessed that he'd never noticed it before. The ranger had worked in this patch for more than ten years and knew his turf far better than I ever could. But we can always notice new things, and sometimes it takes a stranger's eyes to spot them. I have no doubt that the same ranger could point many things out to me in my local patch. We are probably all aware that plants need light and varying amounts of it, but there is a beautiful depth to this simple fact. There is a huge amount of information available once we learn to read the secret code of plants. It is very important to start slowly, and it is sensible to start close to home. Go for a short walk around a garden or park in spring or summer, and keep an eye out for daisies. Notice how you can find plenty in open areas, and especially on open ground, which rolls gently down toward the south. Now just look to the northern side of buildings and hedges, and notice how few daisies there are. Daisies love sunlight, and we get most of our sunlight from the south. Once you start seeing this effect, you will find it wherever you look. Recently, I went for a walk around a local place called Denman Gardens. I wasn't exactly sure which plant would form the best compass on the morning, but within minutes of arising, I knew it would be the diminutive forget-me-nots. These pretty little blue and yellow flowers formed a dense colony around the southern side of the flower beds. The taller plants in these beds threw a shadow onto the northern side and there were no forget-me-nots to be found at all. One of the most beautiful ways of appreciating the sensitivity of wildflowers to light levels is to look up when you would normally look down. The next time you find yourself walking through a woodland and stumble across a magical purple sea of spotted geranium, which is found widely all across the eastern half of the U.S., savor the sight of the flowers, but then look up, Spotted geraniums are one of the many flowers that don't like full shade or full sun. Wood aster is also a clue to partial shade, as is elderberry, which tends to grow in partial shade on the edge of woods. Trillium and bloodroot, like many wildflowers, behave similarly because they bloom before surrounding trees fully leaf out before the surrounding trees fully leaf out in the spring. The chances are that when you look up from the flowers, you will notice a slight break in the tree canopy, allowing a little dappled sunshine to mix up the shade. 